Good morning, church. If you have your Bible with, with you, turn your Bible with me to Book of Genesis. Chapter 5 of Genesis. Great to be here this morning and, and privileged to bring the Word of God, as I always do with all the congregations. If you don't mind, stand with me as a reverence for God's Word. We'll read from our primary text is uh, in, in, excuse me, in Genesis 5, the verse 21 to 24, but I do want us to See the context here in Genesis 5. We'll read from verse 1, and this is the word of God. This is the book of gen- generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 12, Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years, became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, 
and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we come to this portion of worship service where we had privilege of singing and, and praying unto you, now we have the privilege of hearing from you. May your spirit help us to understand your word clearly. So we pray for the clarity of your word. We pray for conviction, for that which is right. And as a result, may we find comfort in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I was um, listening to all the songs and, and so uh, moved, and especially that song where um, this is where Spirit of God confirms um, music team didn't know what I was going to preach, and I didn't give, you know, but what I'm, the text I was going to preach, but if you're taking notes, the, the message is about walking with God, walking with God. We'll look at Genesis 5, looking at verse 21 and 24. Reading Genesis 5 is like walking through a cemetery. Uh, that's because everyone is dead. Uh, this chapter reminds us, if anything, that we are all mortals. No matter how long people live, no matter how advanced medicine is or technology is, we will eventually die. That is a message here. And we look at verse 5, for instance, where the text says, so all the days that our first parent, Adam, lived were 930 years. And then right after how many Years he lived, the text says, and he died. And then verse 8, so all the days of Seth were 920 years, and he died. Verse 11, so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died, and so on. That's how it is mentioned in verse 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31. So, as we look at this, it is dark. It is somewhat depressing chapter on death. But there is one person that Genesis chapter 5 mentioned that is delivered from experiencing death. There's one person. Out of all the list of people, there's one person he does not experience death. And that is Enoch. We ask ourselves, how is that possible? How did he not die? How did he not taste death? The only clue from our text is that in verse 22 and 24, the Bible simply says, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Repeat it twice for emphasis, and he doesn't experience death. This is what happens when you walk with God to the end. 
You defy death, especially and specifically spiritual death. Enoch represents all of God's redeemed people who will not taste spiritual death in the future. That's what Enoch represents. He represents all of God's people. In this short passage, looking at verse 21 to 24, the Bible repeatedly, as I mentioned, says Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean to walk with God? Our immediate text and the context do not shed much light. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't define for us what walking with God means. So, when that happens, especially when we're reading the Old Testament, we must seek the rest of the Bible to see what God says. In theology, we call this uh, the progressive revelation, which means certain aspects of God's truth don't get revealed all at once, but slowly and progressively throughout God's redemptive history. And this is one of those cases. Because Bible isn't written like you're, as if you're reading a systematic theology book where if you want to see certain topics, you look at it. That's not how the Bible is written. It, it is written if you're, people often ask, well, what's the Bible all about? It is, I hope you know how to answer that as, as believers. Bible is a story of God's redemption, isn't it? From the beginning to the end. And there is a big picture that is unfolding before us. And in essence, if you were to summarize that the Bible is a story of God's news, God's good news, how God redeems his people to himself, opening with Genesis. And so the Old Testament is often seen as the New Testament hidden, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And that's why our forefathers, especially our Protestant reformers, urged the practice called the analogy of faith. What that means is the scripture should interpret scripture, which is really one of the rules in Bible interpretations. And this is a case in Genesis 5, where Genesis 5 tells us that Enoch walked with God but does not explain what that means. So we must see where else in Scripture, number one, is Enoch mentioned, and what clue does the Bible tell us about what it means to walk with God? Interestingly, you won't find his name Enoch in the rest of Genesis or the rest of the Old Testament except once in 1 Chronicles 13, in the genealogy of Adam to Abraham. And that's all he mentions. But there are two places, interestingly enough, in the New Testament where much light is shed on Enoch. And that's where I would like for us to look next. Turn your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 11. That's in the, almost toward the end Hebrews 11.
those of you that are somewhat familiar with Hebrews 11, as you know, this is known as the, the chapter on the faith, is the hall of faith, as some people call it. In, he, in Hebrews 11, draw your, your attention to verse 5. This is where we find what the scripture says about Enoch and gives us clue as to what walking with God means. Verse 5 of chapter 11 of Hebrews says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. The scripture says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained a witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And then verse 6 says, right after mentioning about Enoch and his spiritual condition, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So let's make a few exegetical observations from this text. Well, Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. It presents various people of faith in the Old Testament, starting with Abel in verse 4, all the way down to Moses in verse 23, and to prophets to verse 32. And Enoch happens to be the second person on this list, by faith, by faith, by faith. And this chapter, if anything, chapter 11, is about having faith, having faith. That's why in verse 3, 4, 5, and so on, throughout the entire chapter of Hebrew, it says, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's the context. So you can make an implication or connection that walking with God, there is a link between walking with God and what? Having faith. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionaries to China, said, having faith in God really means to have faith in the faithfulness of God, not in your own faithfulness. Hence, it is not our great faith that saves, but faith in a great God that saves. And so often when we understand faith in our evangelical world, people think it's your faith that somehow saved. But if you understand what Paul's letter, what he said in Ephesians, remember, for by grace you've been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is gift of God. Even the ability to believe in God is God's gift. And so we can make a connection that the walking with God, as Hebrews 11 tells us, there is the undividable connection between having faith or having faith with, with walking with God. Um, Heidelberg Catechism, um, it's really helpful in summarizing 
what true faith is. In the Heidelberg Catechism, many of our Reformed brothers and sisters um, believe, and especially in, in the Catechism, number 21 asks this wonderful question, that is, what is true faith? In which the responding answer goes something like this. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence, that is to say, hearty truth, trust, not only to others, but also to me. God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merit. merit. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. And our forefathers who have written this wonderful catechism says, true faith is having trust, having firm trust. And how, did that, how does that happen? It's the work of the Holy Spirit, as the catechism teaches, in my heart, by the gospel. So all that to say, having faith in God is fundamentally about Trusting God wholeheartedly. Walking with God means trusting God wholeheartedly. The second thing that we can make an observation from Hebrews 11, it is not only having faith in God, but also it is to be a person who is pleasing to God. In the verse 5 of Hebrews 11 says, it really clearly describes for us the, the spiritual condition of Enoch before he was taken up. The text says he was what? Pleasing to God. He was pleasing to God. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, not many people you will read that says something like he was pleasing to God or she was pleasing to God. I mean, how many people do you know in the Bible where individuals were pleasing to God? Very rare. In Hebrew, pleasing to God is synonymous with walking with God. That's because walking refers to living obediently to God. It is to walk in integrity and the path of righteousness, as Proverbs 2, 7 tells us. May I say to you, obedience is not always easy. I understand. I'm your fellow pilgrim like you are. Obedience is not always easy, but you know what? It's always right. It's always right. Obedience is not always easy but it's always right. Hence, walking is synonymous with pleasing God. As a result, there's intimate fellowship with God. The third observation that we can make from Hebrews 11 is not only walking with God means having faith in God, being pleasing to God, but also it is to believe that God is God. Walking with God or pleasing to God is connected to believing God. If you look at verse 6, the text says, For he who comes to God 
must believe that he is. You say, he is what? What do I believe? That he is God. That he is the one who created all things with his word. Back in verse 3, that's what the author says. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Remember I said that the gospel, the Bible, is really the story of gospel. It opens with, right here in Genesis, with very opening chapter of this story goes, God is a creator. If, if you want to understand the gospel in a more of historic ways that our forefathers have understood and taught, there's really four pillars that you have to um, understand. When we tell a story, we, we sometimes leave out the important key things. Well, when we share it, when we understand the gospel, the gospel begins with God as a creator. So creation is a very important aspect of understanding the gospel. When we share about about the gospel, we always begin with that understanding that God is the one who created us. And, and, and as I mentioned, that's how the Bible begins. If we understand that the Bible is a story of God's good news, how does a story begin, by the way? Gospel doesn't begin in the New Testament. It begins in the Old Testament. There's a big meta-narrative, as people say. There's a big picture that that reveals from Genesis all the way down to Revelation. So the gospel begins with the reality that God is a creator. So historically, our Protestant forefathers have always emphasized the importance of the distinction between creator and creatures. That God is a creator. That's how the story begins. And so as if God, when God wants the readers to understand who he is. The very first thing that God wants his readers to know about him is that he is a sovereign creator. That's how the story begins. In the beginning, God created the world. Let there be light. There was light. He is a powerful, sovereign creator. And all of his creations and creatures are subject to him. That's how the gospel begins. The next pillar that you ought to understand is what happens in Genesis 3. It's the fall. So we have creation, the fall, and as a result of what happened in the garden, you know the history. The rest of the Bible is how the creation has been marred by sin. And sin leads to other sins and other sins to death. And we see all the ugly things of sin What's the third pillar? Well, creation, the fall, and then we see the redemption with the coming of Christ. And then most of the time when we understand the gospel, we stop right there with the incarnation or the birth of Christ and his death and resurrection. But friends, the gospel doesn't end with resurrection, does it? It ends with where the revelation is. That is the consummation of all history that God will judge the living and the dead. That's part of the gospel. And so our forefathers have taught that, always emphasizing the four pillars of understanding this story, creation, fall, redemption, 
and then the consummation of history. So when the author of Hebrews says in verse 6, he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is what? That he is the creator of all things. He is God, and you're not, and I'm not. Again, the first aspect of the gospel is reiterated in Hebrews 11, that he is a creator, and that he is the one who has sovereignly made all things. What else should we believe about God? Well, according to verse 6, believing God is that God is a what? Rewarder of those who seek him. So according to Hebrews 11, there are a few things that we can walk away making a connection with walking with God. Walking with God implies three actions, according to Hebrews, having faith in God, obeying God, and then what? Believing God. One more passage, as I mentioned. Not only Hebrews 11 sheds some light on Enoch, but turn your Bible with me to Jude. Right before the book of Revelation, Jude, draw your attention to verse 14. Jude 14. So outside of the Old Testament, we find Enoch mentioned in Hebrews 11 and right here in Jude. Draw our attention to verse 14. It says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So outside of Hebrews 11, this is the last place where Enoch is mentioned in the Bible. Well, we looked at specific things that the author of Hebrews says about Enoch. Now we're looking at what Jude said about Enoch. What did Enoch do? Verse 14 tells us that Enoch, what? Prophesied. In other words, Enoch preached. The word prophesied, it means twofold. One is what we often think of foretelling, like foretelling the future, that is. But the the word prophesied also means not only for the foretelling of the future, but forth speaking, which means speaking forth, preaching, in other words. So what did Enoch do? He preached. Question is, what did he preach? Verse 15 tells us what he preached. And two, he preached the coming judgment of God. Not a popular preaching message by any means. It's, it's uncomfortable. According to Jude, Enoch is the seventh generation of Adam. That's what verse 14 says. Why did he point that out? That's because number seven is... So often in the Bible, number seven is the number of completion or finality. And interestingly, Enoch was the last prophet who preached to warn the people 
in his day about the coming judgment of God. Eventually, God's judgment did come after Enoch Denhi. Enoch has a son named who? Noah, you remember? Why do you think, and what do you think is the final instrument? Not only in biblical days, but what do you think is the final instrument that God is using in our day before he sends his judgment? Just like in the days of Enoch, before God's judgment came, the final means, the final means of God in our day is also preaching. It's also preaching. People don't need signs. People don't need further signs. There's already a handwriting of God on the wall. Preaching has always been God's ongoing prophetic ministry in redemptive history. God always had his faithful preachers in every generation who gave the final warnings in their messages. And the ones who failed to provide this final warning of the gospel, um, it's, it's important for us to understand the final aspect of the gospel. Remember I said the gospel is creation, fall, redemption, and the consummation. How God will wrap up his redemptive history. All that to say, to walk with God, according to Jude's perspective, we looked at what Hebrew says, but according to Jude's perspective, is faithfully, faithfully proclaiming the whole counsel of God, the entire gospel, that is, both positive and the negative. Almost every um, conservative historical confessions, and even looking at, I was, I was looking at um, the Grace Bible Church of Hollister's statement of faith as, well, almost every church historically will always have in their doctrinal statement at the end about coming judgment. And one of my favorite historical confession is the Westminster Confession of Faith, where they are wonderful. There's a clear um, doctrinal statement concerning the scripture and the triune God. And as the opening chapter begins with not only what the scripture is, but how God's people ought to see God and their wonderful attributes, list of attributes of God, and including God is not only God of mercy and grace, but including that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him and most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. That's chapter two of Westminster Confession of Faith. And then the last chapter of that Confession of Faith, which is about the last judgment, says these words. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons, all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ 
to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's gather what we learn from both Hebrews 11 and Jude regarding walking with God. Walking with God implies four actions. Having faith in God, obeying God's law, believing God's word, and proclaiming God's gospel. Now, let's go back to Genesis, back to our text. And I want to answer this final question, that is, how do we do that? You help me understand what walking with God means. I hear you, Jim. Jim, you said having, walking with God means having faith in God. It means obeying God's law, believing God's word, and proclaiming God's gospel. That's great. How do I do that? How do I do that? Let's go back to Genesis 5 and let's see how we should do all those things. Perhaps this is the most uh, important aspect of our message this morning. So far we looked at what walking with God means. Here's the most important question, that is how. How should we have faith in God? How should we obey God's law, believe God's word, and proclaim God's gospel? You ready? Here's Genesis 5, verse 22. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and Daughter. The answer is implied in Genesis 5.22. Jim, how do we do this? We do so what? Faithfully. We do so faithfully. The Bible says Enoch walked with God not 300 hours, 300 weeks, 300 months, 300 years. Friends, that's faithfulness. That's perseverance. Remember, he, as a Jew said, he preached. And what did he preach? Well, the Bible tells us, as we looked at it, he preached about coming judgment of God. Not a popular message in his day. Neither is a popular message of our day. You're not going to be invited as guest speaker if you come in with guns blazing with talking about coming judgment. 300 years. 300 years. Imagine what type of responses. And you know the story of the, the, the child of Enoch. Remember, Noah went out. You remember when Noah, being a son of his dad, Enoch, probably heard the preaching. Dad, what are you preaching today? The coming judgment of God. Dad, you're not going to get much of a fan 
by doing that, 300 years. And as he heard that from his dad of coming judgment of God, and God told him, build an ark, people laughed at him. Remember that. You remember the story. And, and through, even through Noah's prophetic ministry, there was no conversion. Nobody came to God. Nobody turned to God. People laughed at Noah. What do you mean judgment of God? What are you talking about? What do you mean? There's going to be a flood. What flood? And even his own sons-in-law questioned him and doubt him. The only people who were saved with him and his children and the entire the animals and the list of creatures that God brought them in. 300 years. That's ministry of, of Enoch and then his son Noah. Walking with God, as you know, is not a sprint. There's no quick way. It's a long and arduous work. Charles Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. That's right. So in summary, here's what I'm proposing to everyone in this room. Let's walk with God by having faith in God, obeying God's law, believing God's word, proclaiming God's gospel, and doing all this, friends, faithfully. Faithfully. And even if, even if, it means not seeing the results in our lifetime. Even if not seeing the results in our lifetime, let us be faithful. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. Do you know there are pastors and missionaries in places that you have never heard? These men who have never written books they're not invited to conferences, retreats, or guest speaking. People that you have never heard. But they're faithfully ministering week in, week out. In the sight of God, they're faithfully serving. We tend to, especially here in America, we tend to judge everything by numbers. We see churches that are like Walmart, and when there's a lot of people go there, we think it's happening. We think it's, wow, there's something good must be happening. But we can't judge faithfulness only by numbers. And God, inside of God, I'm not saying numbers are not important. If, even Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will be fruitful. So I'm not discounting that. But I think we also need to take heed the importance of being faithful. Being faithful even if not seeing the results in our lifetime. As you hear this message, it's possible for some of you to realize 
that you are not faithful to God. It's possible. The good news that the good news is in Christianity, your salvation is not depend on your faithfulness. Instead, it is based on the faithfulness of Christ. And the Bible shows that Jesus was faithful for you, even every moment of his life. So when God justified you, that's a biblical term in Romans and Galatians. So when Bible says God justified you, when God justified me, or another word for justification is when God credited me, when God credited you in Christ, God sees you as if you lived a faithful life of Jesus. That's the gospel. When God sees you, he sees the faithfulness of his son Christ, not your unfaithfulness. Friends, this is the gospel, and that's why it's such a good news. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. As we live in this world and as we've been reminded of just all the ugly things that we see around us, it gets depressing, it gets discouraging. And sometimes as we attempt to faithfully serve you, we don't necessarily see the fruits that we like, see the results that we want. But may your word, may your word remind and encourage all of us this morning as obedience is difficult and it's hard, it's only right. And help this congregation to be faithful in all that you have provided for them with the resources, their time, the gifts, not only individually, but corporately as a church. Help us to be faithful. And we're so thankful as we look at the gospel. You do not choose us because of our faithfulness. But Father, that you have credited the faithfulness of your son Jesus upon us, whereby we are justified. Thank you for such wonderful truth of the gospel. We stand before you not because of our faithfulness. It's quite frankly we are so unfaithful to you so many times. But we stand before you because of the faithfulness of Jesus. Even after the resurrection, the Bible tells us that your son Jesus is praying for us. We take tremendous comfort in the truth of the gospel. May you encourage us with this message in the days forward. Help us to be faithful to you in the services you've called us. We pray all these things in Christ's name.